Hello everyone, I'm Peter Lepson, author of the book Thank God for Football, about the church origins of 12 famous English football clubs who have played in the FA Premier League. The series is based on my book Thank God for Football, which is available from Amazon or directly from the publisher SPCK. Today's club is Aston Villa. The vast majority of English professional football clubs are named after the town or city where they play, but Aston Villa is one of the exceptions. It's named after the Aston Villa Wesleyan Methodist Chapel, where it was born in 1874 in the Lozells area of Birmingham. The Aston Villa Chapel attached great importance to its work with young people, and when two houses adjoining it were bought in 1871, the one closest was fitted out with classrooms to help cater for the over 300 young people who attended the Sunday school. There, they were grouped according to age and gender and were given instruction in the essentials of the Christian faith. One of the classes, the Young Men's Bible class, was the cradle of Aston Villa Football Club. It was in 1872 that some members of this Bible class decided to form a chapel cricket team and to play under the name of the Aston Villa Wesleyan Cricket Club. Two years later, in October 1874, their Bible class teacher Henry Hartshorn suggested they should play football during the winter to keep fit. Hartshorn was held in high regard by the young men and they responded warmly to his idea. However, they weren't sure what kind of football to play. There were many versions of the game in England at the time and there were only a handful of football teams in Birmingham as rugby was the main winter sport. To consider possibilities, four of the members, Jack Hughes, Frederick Matthews, Walter Price and William Scattergood, watched a match between Mosley Grasshoppers and Handsworth Rugby Club one Saturday afternoon in November. What they saw was a very physical game with many similarities to rugby, and they reported back to the others that they felt it was too dangerous. The members therefore agreed to adopt the less physical game of association football for their new club, which they decided to call the Aston Villa Wesleyan Football Club. Henry Hartshorn accepted their invitation to be president. Their early matches were probably just loosely organised practice games among themselves, but by March 1875 they were clearly on a much more organised footing because the first Aston Villa match report appeared in the press at that time. It was against a rugby team from the neighbouring church of St Mary's, Aston Brook. But why a rugby team? Simply because of the difficulty of finding football teams that were not too strong for the humble chapel side. The match was played 15 aside, and to ensure as even a contest as possible, the first half was played under rugby rules, and the second half under football rules. Even different shaped balls were used in each half. Villa, captained by Walter Price, won the match 1-0. Jack Hughes was the scorer. Now the club had made a promising start, but its fortunes were given a major boost when a 20-year-old Scotsman, George Ramsey, who'd left Scotland to find work in Birmingham, came across the Villa players in a practice match one Saturday afternoon in the spring of 1876 and asked if he could join in. He mesmerised the Villa players with his dribbling skills and when the game was over, he was invited to play for the club. He was eventually made captain and he began to attract better players, to reorganise training techniques and to improve the quality of play. 
Another major contribution by Ramsey was persuading a fellow Scot, 31-year-old William MacGregor, to join the committee. MacGregor had left his native Perthshire in 1870 to take advantage of the business opportunities in Birmingham. He bought a linen draper's shop, which he ran for the rest of his life. MacGregor proved to be a visionary and energetic leader and was destined not only to have a huge impact at Villa, but also to change the whole course of football history. He was the founder of the Football League. As a committed Christian, he was widely respected for his honesty and integrity. His pastor and close friend at the Wheeler Street Congregational Church where he worshipped in Birmingham, the Reverend W.G. Percival, once said that the best thing about him, quote, was not so much the genial, kindly, honest sportsman, but it was the Christian behind it all. He described him as a man of absolutely unblemished personal character. It didn't take long for MacGregor to make his presence felt at Villa. One particular problem of great concern to the committee was the players' drinking habits. Many regularly gave training amiss, preferring to spend their time in local pubs, and some even turned up drunk for matches. Determined to instill new habits in them, MacGregor, a lifelong teetotaler, rented a room at a coffee house and made them attend social gatherings and musical events there every Monday during the season. There can be little doubt that this injection of discipline helped lay the foundations for the phenomenal success that Villa were to enjoy later. Under the guidance of MacGregor and Ramsey, they became the most successful club in England, winning the league championship five times and the FA Cup twice between 1894 and 1900. In 1896-7, they even won the league and cup double. Now, although MacGregor was a leading light at Villa, he will always be remembered as the father of the Football League. What prompted him to form it? When Villa turned professional in 1885, they relied on income from match attendances to pay the players' wages, but it was a huge concern for the club that their attendances were continually falling. The reason was, quite simply, that Villa so dominated Midlands football that their games against inferior sides were too one-sided to appeal to their supporters. The occasional cup ties offered some excitement, but friendlies were the staple diet of football at that time, and they were notoriously unreliable. Apart from being often too one-sided, games were frequently cancelled at very short notice or with none at all. Teams sometimes turned up with too few players and had to recruit spectators. Kick-off times and the duration of games were often changed a day without notice, and it was not unusual for a team to fail to turn up for a game because they'd found more attractive opposition elsewhere. The result of this chaotic situation was disastrous for professional clubs with wage bills to meet. By 1886, MacGregor had become convinced that the only solution was what he called a fixity of fixtures. In other words, a guaranteed set of fixtures played on a regular basis between a designated number of top clubs with points awarded according to results. With this in mind, he called an exploratory meeting with the representatives of seven professional clubs at Anderton's Hotel in Fleet Street, London, in March 1888 to discuss his proposal. It was warmly approved, and it was decided that a total of 12 clubs should be invited to attend a meeting at the Royal Hotel Manchester in April to consider the formation of a league. 
The meeting was a success, and the football league was born. The first ever league matches kicked off on Saturday, the eighth of September, eighteen eighty-eight. On that historic day, Villa drew one-one away to Wolverhampton Wanderers. McGregor retired from the presidency in eighteen ninety-three, just five years after the league had been formed. He no doubt looked back with satisfaction over its growth in that short time, from twelve clubs to thirty-one, and from one division to two. In eighteen ninety-five, he was made a life member of the Football League, an honour no other person received. When the league celebrated its twenty-first birthday in nineteen o nine, he was presented with a beautifully decorated certificate expressing appreciation for his services and a silver casket on behalf of all members. Despite the time and energy McGregor gave to the Football League, his commitment to Aston Villa didn't waver. Although not an officer after eighteen eighty-eight, such was the esteem in which he was held that he played an integral part in momentous developments at the club during the glory years of eighteen ninety-four to nineteen hundred. When he died on the twentieth of December nineteen eleven, aged sixty-five, his passing evoked an emotional response not only at Aston Villa but also nationwide. His funeral took place on the twenty-third of December at the Wheeler Street Congregational Church, where he had worshipped for over forty years. An imposing cortege, which included representatives of the sporting world from all parts of the country, made its way from his home to his church. Respectful crowds lined the streets to pay tribute to him. Following the service, he was buried in the picturesque graveyard of the parish church of St Mary's, Handsworth. His obituary in the Birmingham Gazette gives a clear indication of the esteem in which he was held. Mr. McGregor was a personality in Birmingham. He was beloved by all who knew him. Our old friend was an astute judge of character and was a born leader of men. Simple in his tastes, conscientious in his business, a man of the highest integrity, and one who never sought publicity or notoriety. The sporting world in general is the poorer by his death. Though McGregor never sought publicity or notoriety, he's never been forgotten at Aston Villa, where there are still visible reminders of his influence. The club badge is a good example. It was at his suggestion that the Scottish national symbol of a lion rampant was adopted as the club's emblem. A lion also sits proudly at each of the main gates at Villa Park. Another reminder of him is McGregor's Lounge in the Trinity Road stand at Villa Park, while his name also lives on in McGregor Close next to the stadium. The Football League also has never forgotten its debt to its founder. At a memorial event in McGregor's honour, sponsored by the Football League in 1912, he was described by the management committee as quote, a thoughtful, tactful, and wise councillor and legislator. Full of the highest ideals for the game to be played and controlled in clean, honest, and manly fashion, he has left a record and influence on the game that will make his memory honoured and revered. On the centenary of his death in 2011, a moving service of celebration and recognition was held for him at St Mary's Parish Church, Handsworth. It was attended by a large congregation, which included the president of the Football League, the Lord Mayor of Birmingham, the Bishop of Aston, and representatives of the founding clubs of the Football League. 
McGregor's grave in the churchyard, which had been specially restored for the centenary, was rededicated by the Bishop of Aston with Lord Morwinnie and representatives of the founding league clubs in attendance. Finally, a word about the relationship between Aston Villa Football Club and the Aston Villa Chapel. It clearly remained friendly over many years. For instance, when a service was held in the chapel in May 1935 to commemorate the 70th anniversary of its opening, the chairman of Aston Villa, the club's secretary and several players all attended. And of course, the club's name is a permanent reminder of its religious origin. Sadly, the chapel was demolished in 2007, but a plaque on the new church building on the site where it stood informs passers-by that the famous Aston Villa Football Club was born here. As you know, most clubs have a song or tune associated with that club, and they love to sing the song in particular before, during, and if they're successful in the match, after the game. You're now going to hear the song associated with Aston Villa. you enjoyed that story join us again next time to hear another one about the church origin of a famous english football club until then it's goodbye from me peter lupson author of thank god for football